Thank you, Dr. Joslin, for that worship that was excellent and, uh, in fact, is the uh, topic of our psalm tonight. Uh, not all of it, just worship in general. So, there, yeah, but thank you for that. Um, one of the joys that I uh, have here at Ninth and O is to watch how worship is fueled. And um, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But worship is fueled by the truths of God. We can't say that worship is fueled by music or else we begin to worship the wrong thing, right? We can't say that music is, or worship is, is fueled by our attitudes because then we get into trouble there as well. But worship must be fueled by the truth of Scripture. And that's what we find regularly in this place. What a blessing for us, right? So thank you for that worship. Many of you will recognize the name Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in New England in the mid-1700s and was very influential in helping New Englanders to kind of navigate the revivals of the First Great Awakening. And one of the books that he wrote in response to the First Great Awakening was a treatise concerning religious affections. He wrote this in 1746. I know, I like the old dudes, it's okay. He wrote this book as kind of a measuring line for those who were a part of the Great Awakening so that they could kind of know if their expressions of worship outwardly were genuine Christian expressions of worship or if they were just merely displays of self-exaltation, drawing attention to oneself. So he's trying to help them navigate those waters. And some of the things that he mentioned were things like strong emotions. He said strong emotions couldn't necessarily tell you whether you were worshiping in spirit and truth. They might, but they couldn't necessarily tell you that. You may come to worship and be moved by the emotions of your day or the goings-on of life, but it could also be the movement of the spirit, but we don't know. Other things were like outward behavior, things like raising your hands, dancing. During the First Great Awakening, you get these lavish displays of worship, people rolling on the floors. I won't demonstrate that one for you. And Edwards is trying to combat that and say, we can't decide for sure if that is a display of the movement of God stirring in someone's heart. It may just be self-exaltation. So he's trying to help them navigate what is genuine religious affection, right? And he brought balance to this idea of the outward worship by saying, on the other hand, that strong emotions and outward manifestations of praise, other expressions of worship, could in fact be evidences of genuine worship. So he gives it a balance. If the Spirit of, the, of God was the one who stirred the affections by the truth of Scripture. So which one is it? Is worship genuine if it's accompanied by outward displays? Or is worship genuine only when we stand in solemn, stoic postures com- contemplating divine truths? Which is it? I think it's both. And I think that's the balance that we have here that is such a beautiful and rich thing as a body of believers. As long as our worship is genuinely fueled by God's truth through a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then our outward manifestations of worship will mirror that internal affection that God has created in us. Sometimes it will be rampant and joyous praise. Other times it will be humble solitude. But it will mirror that affection that God has given to us. At times the affection is, is rampant joy We can't help but expel loud noises from our mouths. Sorry for the people that sit in front of me. It's right. That's proper. It has its place. 
if it is fueled by God's truth rather than self-exaltation. At other times, the worship will take a posture of reverence and solemnity, not because we have some Dr. Phil three-step method to balance our worship, but simply because we understand who we are in God's economy. He has chosen us, and he didn't have to. And that drives us to deep humility and balance, right? Ironically enough, these affections will oftentimes be mixed, and they should. They oftentimes will occur beside one another in this nice mesh of how God has designed our hearts and minds and souls to work together as outward expressions of worship to our Lord. And I think Edwards brought a very nice balance to this idea. And Psalm 95 is where we will be tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And Psalm 95 has this same balance. The title tonight is an invitation to exuberant and humble praise. We have both here. We have the balance. It's, it's worship. It's expressions. David is, uh, I have to kind of qualify this. Your Bibles probably don't say David at the beginning, but the, the author of Hebrews tells us that David penned these words. So I'll refer to David a lot, even though you don't see him there. And David invites us to this exuberant and humble praise with a warning. So let's read the psalm together, and then we'll begin. This is Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Exclamation point. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. And therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. At the very beginning of this psalm in verses 1 and 2, we get this invitation to exuberant praise. And it continues down into verse 5. David invites us to sing to the Lord with this idea of making a joyful noise. We see it in verse 1 and we see it again in verse 2 as a repetition to kind of bring uh, emphasis here to this shout for joy. The idea is in the joyful noise, though it says joyful noise in the Psalter, the idea is um, a loud shout. This is the same shout that uh, Israel would have proclaimed when the walls of Jericho came down. It's that loud shout, right? Uh, When uh, David was going to war against the Philistines, they would shout. It's just the same word here, right? And then they would pursue the enemy. It's just a very nice word. So although those are not the context of worship, it gives us the idea of the term that David uses here, right? It's this idea of exuberance and joy and raucous is the word that I kept coming to my mind in, in this. And in some sense... This joyful noise, the the loud singing of God's people fueled by his word becomes our Christian war cry. Dr. Cook has reminded us regularly that there's a, a battle going on among us. It's not a battle with flesh and blood. It may be that, 
but primarily it's a spiritual battle. And when we join our hearts in this room and in our families and we sing joyous praise to the Lord, the demons run and flee at the sound of the name King of Majesty, right? You've heard that word. You've heard that phrase in a song we sing regularly, right? It becomes our Christian war cry, and David invites us to that wild, passionate, and exuberant praise. David also gives us the reason then in verses 3 through 5, or what we would call the ground, with the word for. Why, why should we praise? Here's why. Because. For. The Lord is a great God and a great king. He's a great God in the sense of supreme over all in this culture of other gods and polytheism. There is one God who stands over all of them and David knows that this is him. He is sovereign, supreme over all, but he's also a great king. As a king in this culture, the king would have been responsible for taking care of the people rather than ruling harshly over them. Now, that got defective by sin, and the king would often rule over the people, but the idea is that the king would be the one who watches out for the people, who builds up the ramparts of the wall so that the people would be safe. And this is who David says God is for him. He's a great king above all gods. It's interesting to me that David is the king in history, And yet he freely and joyously gives that title to the Lord as king. Another thing, another reason that David invites us to exuberant praise is because the Lord is a sovereign and extensive caretaker. Look at verse 4. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. You get this extensive nature here, the depths of the earth, potentially referring to the underworld, but also potentially referring to even the literal ground at the bottoms of the ocean, that they know there's stuff under there, but the deepest depths that you can think of in in the mind of of a human being at that time, all the way to the highest of the mountaintops, that, that distance between the two doesn't mean that God necessarily dwells on the bottoms of the oceans or that God dwells in the highest of the mountains, though he does, but that expansive, expansive difference is what demonstrates that God is all, his care is all extensive. So we shouldn't think necessarily of depths and mountains and that's all. It's a way of saying it all is under his care. We get another extreme in verse 5, similar kind of thing. The sea is his, he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. You see the same thing again, the sea, the dry land. From the bottom to the top, from the sea to the dry land, it's all his. He's great God over all of it. He's great king over all of it, and he cares for all of it. Is this not a reason to sing joyous praise to his name? David expands on why God is the extensive caretaker of the universe also in verse 5. The sea is his. Why? Because he made it. So God, in fact, is the creator who, by the breath of his lips, created all things and now sustains all things. Think about this for a minute with God's creation. He created out of nothing, right? We call this, what do we call it? Ex nihilo in academic circles. Out of nothing. That's what that means. Out of nothing. We can't even fathom nothing. Anybody, a vacuum. Okay, not a vacuum cleaner, not a who, a vacuum in a science lab, right? It's... Nothing. Suck out all the, put it in a container, suck out all the matter, vacuum. Very good, cute. Well, that's something. It's contained, it's space. We've named it. What we can comprehend in a science lab as nothing is, in fact, something. 
and God created out of nothing. That should drive us to exuberant praise that this is the one who cares for us. Right? Think about the expanses of the universe. The Hubble Space Telescope continues to provide pictures of far-off galaxies that just flat leave us speechless, frankly. And God created these instantaneously as a display of his sovereign ownership, control, and care of the universe, just like that. With David's limited understanding of astrology and astronomy and how things work, the best that he could come up with was the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains, the sea and the dry land. That's, that's what he had in his tangible universe to say it's all God's. We might say something like this. In his hands are the nucleic acids that make up DNA and the whizzing electrons of an atom that are held in place by gyroscopic rotation. The expansive galaxies of the cosmos are his. We couldn't reach those in our lifetime with the fastest shuttle, and they're all in his hand. How could we not praise this creator and caretaker with exuberance, right? As we contemplate exuberant praise, I don't, let us not be afraid to worship the Lord with loud exuberance. Who cares about the person, in, I mean, care about the person in front of you, right? But <laughs> hopefully we can get them to crank up the decibels a little bit so it'll drown me out. But with this description of God. Sorry if you sit in front of me. (laughs) Let's not shy away from appropriate charismatic expressions of God's work in our hearts. He's a great God, a great king, a sovereign creator and caretaker of the universe. Come, let us as a body worship with exuberance. But David continues in verse 6 with An invitation to humble praise. He balances it, right? It's more solemn tone. I I don't think that David has left the affections of the joy behind, but he has now coupled with it this toned down, settled, balanced worship. He says this in verse 6. We get the same invitation, O come. This time, though, it's in the context of bowing down and kneeling before the Lord. David recalls that God is creator, our maker, right? But he makes that now personable. God's creative abilities are now no longer the sea and the dry lands, but it is now God is our maker. He makes it personal here. David's humble posture is likely due to the fact that he understands that a transcendent creator God is close. And he's personal. He's intimately involved in the lives of his people. And this drives David to humility and should drive us as well. David gives us reasons for for why we should express humble worship as well in verse 7 as he continues. David provides this reason. I think, I think that the reason David takes this humble posture before the Lord is because God has chosen us as his people and he didn't have to. I don't know if you've ever thought about that for very long, but all that God has done for us in Christ and all that God did for his people throughout the Old Testament and their history, he did not have to do that. And I think David is coming to that understanding. I think he understands that. So we're invited now to this humble praise because God is close. God has made us his people and he didn't have to do that. It's an extreme display of grace and mercy on his part and drives us to humility. 
Some of the specific things he mentions, we've already talked about our maker. He makes it close. But then also this term, our God. We see the the pronoun there, our, to make it personal. But in verse 7, when he says that this is our God, this is the one who's transcendent. And he's now made himself known in a saving way that we can be called his people. He is our God and we are the people of his pasture. This, This language is very covenantal. God would often tell Israel, his chosen people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And now David just, he, he expresses that same thought, but from his perspective, you are our God and we are the people of your pasture. So he's using this covenantal language and then he's humbled, extremely humbled. Let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, that God would choose Israel from among the nations as his special people. Let me stop here for just a second and think about this idea of choosing. This kind of struck me this week that God's choosing of his people should lead us to deep humility. There is, there is no room for pride and hubris when the God of the universe says, you're mine. There is, we're, we're not better than the pagan who has yet to trust Christ because God has chosen us. We are not better than that family member who has a gruff attitude at the, th- at the Thanksgiving and Christmas table that causes us to sneer. We're not better than our self-righteous boss who doesn't think he needs Jesus. We are no better. That God would say, your mind should drive us to deep humility. The next specific reason that David gives us to be humble is that we are the sheep of God's pasture. David's humbled that God would choose him in a covenant relationship. He's humbled by the nature of that relationship. God's not a a tyrant or an overlord who claims ownership of his people in a tyrannical way. But the relationship that God calls us to is one of a shepherd and sheep. Very gentle, very soft, but very firm. God uses gentle and firm discipline to keep us on the right path. We hear his voice and we follow. In fact, we can't help but follow. Some people make the joke about sheep being dumb, and perhaps there's some truth to that. But when we put this analogy in the context of us as sheep and Christ as our shepherd, there is nothing stupid about following that voice. So don't, uh, don't sell yourself short with the dumb sheep analogy. If you hear the voice of Christ and you follow, there is nothing dumb about that. In fact, following the voice of the good shepherd is perhaps the most profound expression of human nature. Who are we as people? Who is the human race? At our deepest and most vulnerable level, We are those who must be dependent on our sovereign, loving, righteous shepherd. We have to be. We have to be. I've never seen a sheep that that bows its chest and struts around because he's a sheep. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. Rather, a sheep by default is dependent. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. David uses that analogy to drive us to deep humility. God's careful attention to our needs and his meticulous working to bring about Christ-likeness in our lives is like a shepherd leading his sheep to green pastures. And it leads us to a humble, 
praise. God's goodness must fuel humility, not hubris. David ends here with an abrupt warning in verses 7, the last part of 7 through the end of the psalm. After inviting the congregation to worship with this balance of exuberance and humility, David brings in this warning. The warning starts in the middle of verse 7 and then is coupled grammatically with what follows behind it. It may look a little weird in your Bibles because verse 8 splits the, the phrase, uh, but the author of Hebrews quotes it this way, so I think it's legitimate to say today if you hear his voice is the beginning of the warning. David continues the, the shepherd sheep idea with hearing the voice. Um, a little side note here. This is the beginning of the warning, and David continues the shepherd sheep idea. And I just want to say that hearing the voice of the shepherd, even if it is a warning and discipline, is a gracious and good thing. So don't discount the discipline and warnings of the Lord. Those are good things. We get the warning proper, so to speak, in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Perhaps David knows that the number one roadblock to exuberant and humble praise is a hard, obstinate, distracted heart. Maybe he knows that's the number one thing that will get in the way. He gives us the example in verses 8 through 11 of the wilderness generation. And he says, this is the people who you should not be like. And this uh, don't harden your hearts like they did at Meribah or at Massah brings to their mind and hopefully to ours the stories from Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 when Israel had water from the rock. And I wish that I could give this whole history. I don't have time for it, but it's remarkably fun to think through, for me at least. Um, You're like, no, please don't. Just don't do it. Exodus 14, you get the narrative of leaving Egypt. Exodus 15, you get the song of leaving Egypt. Exodus 15, last half, you get the bitter waters that they complained about. Moses threw in a log, made those waters sweet. They had water, complained water. Exodus 16, they complain about food, quail, manna, complaint. 14, 15, unbelievable movement of God in their lives, and they come out and complain, complain, complain. And in Exodus 17, we get right here to this passage, where this example, where they're complaining again about water, and this is where the Lord tells Moses to go strike the rock and bring water from it. And what does the Lord do? He provides for them, right? So again and again and again, Israel expressed hard, obstinate, grumbling hearts. And this is exactly in the context of exuberant and humble praise what David tells us not to do. Don't be like that. And I have to believe that God preserved those examples and that David recalled them because we tend to harden our hearts in exactly the same way. Uh, Perhaps our worship becomes deficient because of pride. We know that God is the creator. We know that God can provide food and water out of a rock if he wanted to. Even today, sure, why not? We know that God can do these things. We know that God as creator can work out the difficult circumstances that we're in right now. We know this. But we come to worship and, and the entire time our minds are rushing to figure out how to make our lives work. We think about that next job move, or we think about that last job that we were at, how good it was and how much we hated it. 
We think about how to get our children to obey. And these kinds of arrogant distractions where we are trying to do life on our own get in the way of the exuberance and humility that God's called us to worship with. Those distractions can be good things. It's not a problem to think through how your children are going to obey. They can be good things, but they can still get in the way. Don't try to do it on your own. There's no place for pride. Perhaps our worship becomes deficient because of grumbling. In Christ, we have every good and perfect gift, and yet we spurn God's goodness by grumbling about what we don't have. Perhaps our grumbling is directed toward the musical style or perhaps the decibel level of the electric guitar. I saw you turn it down tonight. No, I didn't. <laughs> Actually, I didn't. I, was, I saw you turn it up. Perhaps, perhaps our grumbling is, is due to the missing sleep that we think we deserved the night before. Perhaps our grumbling is due to a busy schedule as an independent business owner rather than a Forbes 500 CEO. But we grumble because we are ungrateful. Look back at verse 2. With the invitation to exuberant praise, David also says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Is it perhaps true that David knew from the very outset of this psalm that the key to combating the grumbling nature of our lives that is exactly like Israel is thanksgiving? That we approach God with genuine gratitude so that our grumbling is stamped out and our worship can soar to the throne of God. Maybe our worship becomes deficient because we have put God to the test. It's a subtle test for us. We're too smart to just say, what are you doing, God? But maybe we say something like this, I'm going to go to church today, but I expect to get that raise, Lord. I'm going to sacrifice for you and follow your voice, then you better come through for me. Maybe, that's, maybe that gets in the way of our worship. Maybe it's more of quarreling with the Lord over your current situation. How could you have me in this situation? How have you put me in this transitional phase of life where I'm not sure what to do next? Why can't you just show me clearly what the next step is? Why can't you just write it on the wall? You remember what happened to the king's knees when the writing came on the wall? You don't want it written on the wall. Why can't you take me back to Egypt? what Israel said the way things used to be when life was stable don't no don't get me wrong Lord I hated Egypt but at least I knew how to live there why can't we go back there maybe you're subtly testing the Lord and quarreling with him over what you think is not his movement in your life perhaps our worship lastly becomes deficient because of a hard heart of false Christianity and this can manifest itself in a couple of ways one way that it can manifest itself is by those who claim to be Christians and yet inside you know that you've never really trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's one way. The other way is for the rest of us. That it can be manifested in those who are genuine believers, but for whatever reason, at any point in time, you're not acting like you know or love the Lord. Look at verse 9. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my Work. The wilderness generation just watched God part a sea, walked through it, saw it come down on Pharaoh's army. They had seen his ways. They had seen his work. They knew exactly 
what God was all about with this great redemption from Egypt, and they still didn't trust him. Look at verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. That's interesting. Didn't you just tell us they saw your work, but they didn't know your ways? I think the point that David is getting across is that sometimes God's people look and act like they have no desire to trust the Lord and to rest in his goodness. We have seen God's great redemption in Christ. We have heard the stories of the bloody cross and the perfection of Christ that covers our sin. We have seen God's redemption and yet sometimes we act like we have no idea what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Don't harden your heart in such a way that if a guest walked in here, he or she would wonder whether we even love the Lord. Let exuberance flow. Let humility bring balance to our worship, but let the truths of God's goodness and God's kingship lead us to a place where we joyfully shout noises to the Lord. This abrupt warning in some way brings us full circle in this psalm. Even though Israel was hard-hearted and even though God's people stumble and grumble, grumble, he still brought them out of Egypt. Even though we sometimes come to worship with hard hearts, God still has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Look at verse 1, where we come full circle. All of these ideas of salvation and redemption that are brought to the mind, David begins this psalm with, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us worship with exuberant praise, but let us not forget that he didn't have to do this. Let us balance our worship with a deep humility fueled by the grand truths of Scripture. The author of Hebrews quotes this psalm, in chapters 3 and 4 pretty extensively, and we could talk for days about all of those uses there. But his main goal is to tell believers to hold fast their confession until the end. And he begins that section in Hebrews, one, or, sorry, Hebrews 3, 1 with, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confection. Uh, confession. He goes straight there. Quotes the psalm, uses it in context, gives the illustrations, and then he comes to the end of that section and he says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven. Jesus comes back to Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here it is. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Let us draw near together and worship at the throne of God. Indeed, we have a great high priest who, by whose power our hearts can be softened so that we can confidently approach the Father with humble and exuberant praise. Let's pray together. Father, we indeed are humbled. And Father, I pray that in some respects that would be our first reaction to your goodness and your grace is, is a deep humility. But Lord, when we see and hear and read in your word the good things that you've done for us in Christ, how you've saved us, you've raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, you've chosen us, you've forgiven us, you have redeemed us, Lord, 
these truths lead us to a deep joy, and I pray that they would. So, Lord, I pray that the work that your Spirit does in our hearts and the work that your Word does in our hearts would bring us to a joyful exuberance and a profound humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.